0: scourged Jesus he delivered him to be crucified and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on him and they began to salute him hail king of the jews and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in his way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and the son of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is not going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid.
1: Thanks, Amanda. When you try to tell someone about a friend... I feel like the normal way that you do that, the normal M.O. for telling someone about a friend is if you really want them to know that person, you tell stories, right? If you just want somebody to know, like, details, well, you just tell details. You tell them the name, you tell them facts, you tell them, like, just information about them. But if you really want someone to know a person, you tell them stories. Like this morning, uh, I was, I pulled out my car to come here to, you know, do this thing that we do. And uh, I don't know why that was like, so hard to say. I was like, what do we do here? Oh, church. Um, I like, pulled my car up, and I was walking up, and there was two homeless folks who were sitting in our patio furniture. And as I walked up, I realized they both had cups of coffee. And I entered into the building, and I saw a pot of coffee, and the only person here was A.J., And if you know AJ, like you know that story says something about him. Like he would never tell you that he did that. He would never tell you that like he made coffee for people. It would never even cross his mind. But that story is like such a small encapsulation of who AJ is. Actually, I've been calling AJ recently Alan because he shaved his beard. So without a beard, Alan (laughs) made a pot of coffee. (laughs) Right? If you know him, you know that that moment says something about him. It reveals who he is. If I wanted to tell you about my mom, I might tell you that she was a single mom, and that she raised me while she started a company and endured the loss of her husband. I might tell you amazing stories about her character or her endurance or her perseverance or the way that she loved, the way that she cared for others, even in the midst of her own crisis. That would give you a snapshot of who she is. I would also, though, feel like it was very important to tell you that when I was eight, she decided to do a Jazz movie marathon and then take me to Hawaii. <laughs> I just think that that tells you something about my mom and our relationship, that she's a monster. <laughs> just joking. She's not even here. But right? those stories, those small images, they tell you something about a person. They reveal who they are. It's more than details. It's more than facts. It's more than just like pieces of information. They are deep revelations of who. And as we've been working through the story of Mark, the book of Mark, that is what we've been seeing about Jesus. It's this really short book, 16 chapters. And as we're reading through it and as we're walking through it, what you get is a, a picture of Jesus, an image of who he is. It's more than just facts. It's more than just information. It's more than just details about when he was born or how he lived. It is a story about who he is. And as we come to the end of Mark, it's like that weightiness of those stories is even more intense. And what they reveal about Jesus is even more Substantial. In fact, that question, who is Jesus, is at the front of these stories. Last week, Heather walked us through Mark 14 when Jesus is betrayed in the garden. He's led before the council. And the question that the council asks him in verse 61 is that question, who is Jesus? It says, and again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do you need? Right in this story, the central question is, who is Jesus? What does he claim about himself? What is he declaring? What kind of life is he living? What does that mean for the world? Who is Jesus, and what does his identity mean for us? How should we respond to it? And in chapter 14, the the question revolves around whether or not Jesus is Messiah or the chosen one, the person who's fulfilling all the hopes of Old Testament Israel. And if he is those things, then it means something for the world around him. And it means something for how the world responds to him. And it means something for those priests and those scribes who are trying him, which is why they respond with such visceral hate and aggression, because they do not suffer what it means. As we come to chapter 15, you have the same question but a different set of implications. Right following his being before the council, Jesus is dragged before Pilate. In like 14, the question is about who Jesus is. Pilate asks Jesus specifically, are you the king of the Jews? So we're in chapter 14, the question is one of religious implications, of theological implications. Are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? Are you the one who's going to forgive our sins? Are you the one who is connected to God? Are you the one who is going to rescue us as a Jewish people? This question is fundamentally a political question. Are you a political figure? Are you king of the Jews? Now Pilate, he doesn't care really, about the theological infighting of the Jewish community. He could not care if Jesus is Messiah or not Messiah. He wouldn't be interested in asking that question. But he does care about the political implications of Jesus' existence. He's tasked with peacekeeping in Palestine. That's his job. That's the work that he's called to. He has been placed there by Rome to oversee the political machinations of this region. And so Jesus is deeply interested... or Pilate is deeply interested in the political implications of Jesus' existence. If Jesus is claiming kingship, then that is a threat to Rome. Rome has actually already had a problem with Jewish revolts. And when Mark is writing this gospel, they are having another problem with Jewish revolts, which is why the temple gets destroyed in AD 70, Jewish revolts. So if someone is claiming to be king, there is a threat there. So Pilate is interested in the political claims of Jesus. So he asks him, are you king of the Jews? But the interesting thing about Pilate is that he's also a complicated character. He asks him if he's king of the Jews. He has this exchange with Jesus. And then he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate, therefore, is uninterested in killing him. And so instead of killing Jesus, like immediately, he tries to satisfy the crowd, to placate them or to manage the situation that he sees unfolding around him. So the next story in the moment after he's before Pilate is he goes before the people and there is a habit or a tradition of releasing a prisoner. And so Pilate is like, okay, maybe I will release a really terrible prisoner, and that option will be so bad that they'll have to choose Jesus, because I believe that Jesus is innocent. So he's like, do you want Barabbas, who is a terrorist, or do you want Jesus? But it doesn't work. And the crowd actually forces him to release Barabbas, a terrorist, and also hold Jesus. So Pilate then switches to a second strategy. He's like, okay, well, maybe that didn't work, but maybe if I, if I have Jesus beaten, if I have him punished, that'll satiate the violence of the crowd, but it doesn't. And still they cry for crucifixion. And in verse 15, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. In chapter 14, when we saw the religious leaders confront Jesus, it turns to hatred and violence. But when Pilate is asked to respond to the life and claims of Jesus, it leads to fear and attempts to control, manage, and satisfy. Pilate is concerned about conflict and tension. He's concerned about doing a bad job as a bureaucrat. He's like a normal mid-level manager in Rome, and he's interested in maintaining the peace. And so when fear and anxiety and worry is like interjected into Pilate's life, he tries to control it, to manage it. to do what power always does. Manage fear. So like that is often our own habit. When fear and anxiety arise, I think we often try to control the situation. So we plan or we manage or we strategize and we talk about if we accomplish these goals or these purposes, then we can kind of placate or control or harness or deal with our own fear and our own anxiety. But the problem for Pilate is it doesn't work. simply doesn't work. The pilot's attempts at management get a terrorist released instead of Jesus, and they get Jesus beaten instead of released, and it still leads to Jesus' death. So the very thing that he was trying to fix through management or control, it makes it worse. Pilate's attempts to manage his own fear or control his own anxiety actually makes the situation around him worse. He cannot manage the crowd cannot control the fear. In fact, Pilate even tries to get Jesus to operate the same way. He keeps pressing Jesus on these questions, like, who are you? If you answer this right, if you answer this well, if you're just strategic about how you engage with me, then you can go free. But Jesus refuses. He refuses to answer. He refuses to manage. He refuses to manipulate. This is true throughout the entire narrative of Mark. Following this moment with Pilate, Jesus is beaten. He's mocked. He's crucified. He's murdered. And at no point does he try to manage or control that situation. The prophet Isaiah, when speaking about this moment, says it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 7. says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Doesn't argue. Doesn't attempt to manage or coerce or control. Because he doesn't work. The crowd cannot be satisfied. In attempts to manage or control, leave everyone unsatisfied. And Isaiah then goes on to say, like, well, this is why he won't try to manage it. In verse 11 of that same chapter, Isaiah says, out of the anguish of Jesus' own soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This moment is so crazy. Pilate is trying to satisfy the urges of the crowd, to satisfy their violence. He fails to do so. And the prophet Isaiah is like, you know the only person who leaves this moment satisfied? Oh, the one who absorbed all the hostility of those around him and did not try to manage it or control it. That is like so upside down to the way that our world works. Which is to say that if you, want to, if you want to enjoy life or you want to have an abundant life or you want to have a flourishing life or whatever, then the way that you do that is through management, strategizing, control, achievement. And Isaiah's is like, oh, you know who walked away from that situation? The one who was murdered by it. Our world and Pilate's world is about control and management. But Jesus says, offers our control, our management, our fear, and our anxiety, Jesus offers it trust in his Father and submission to the way of the cross. And the result from Jesus' trust in his Father and submission to the way of the cross is that every single one of us are invited into that same kind of trusting relationship with him and by him. And when talking about that relationship, Paul in 2 Corinthians says this. He says, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What we see in Jesus and what we are invited into in Jesus is just a different way of operating in this world. A way of operating where God's strength and power is made most manifest in the weakness of his people where those who suffer and endure the way of the cross for the sake of love are those who are satisfied. And it doesn't make any sense to Pilate. Like he presses him and he tries to get him to control the situation or manage the situation. And when Pilate can't get Jesus to do that, to give up this way of the kingdom, he hands him over, washes his hands, and he gives them to the crowd and the soldiers. And when Jesus is handed over to the crowds and the soldiers, before they lead him to crucify him, the text says they clothe him in a purple cloak. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mock him, they strike him, they spit on him. Then, as they do lead him to crucify him, it says that the crowd around mocks and jeers. And then even after being crucified, the text says, that people yelled at him, the priests yelled at him. He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king, this heroic political figure, let the king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. When we cannot control, we dehumanize and reject. So when Pilate cannot control Jesus, when he cannot manipulate the situation, when he cannot satisfy the crowds, when he cannot force fear into a container, well, then it is dehumanized and rejected. It is mocked. It is jeered. It is reduced. Right? We are happy to control things that we are afraid of as long as we can control them. We are happy to use people that we dislike Happy to think about people around us as pawns. Happy to think about our family as pawns. Happy to think about uncomfortable situations and uncomfortable environments as pawns that we can control for our own agenda. But as soon as those things are not controllable, they become threats. And people very quickly become predators. Predators. So we begin to rewrite their narrative and rewrite their story and dehumanize them and make them less than they are because that justifies our rejection of them. It is so much easier to not move towards someone in relationship if I just think they're an idiot, right? Or if I think someone is cruel or if I think someone is mean, then I can justify anything I want about my own engagement with that person. Right, we rewrite their story. We dehumanize them, which justifies our rejection of them, our cruelty, our exclusion. So Jesus is mocked. He's reduced, which allows the crowd to murder him. His story is rewritten and reduced. But here's what the crowd, and the soldiers, and even Pilate, that often us never understand. That the more that they mocked Jesus, the more they stripped him, the more they reduced him, the more that they actually participated in his glorification, in the great revelation of who God really is. The famous reformer and theologian John Calvin, I think, said it this way, it says they call on him to prove his divinity by coming down from the cross, but he shows it precisely by continuing to suffer. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2. He says, Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of servant. This is who God is. This is how God operates. This is how God works. This is how God moves in the universe. They thought they were reducing him. They thought they were mocking him. They thought they were stripping him. They thought they were dehumanizing him. And all they were doing is revealing to the world who God actually is. He really was a poor Jewish man hanging on a cross. That's not a denial of his nature. That's not some abhorrent nature. That's not some other part of his nature. That's fundamentally who God is because he was in the form of God. He took on the form of servant and became obedient to the point of death because he was in the form of God. This is who God is. And in the mocking and the stripping and the reducing, they reveal it. We see it in this moment with the cross, but it continues throughout the whole story of the Bible, and we get it in maybe its most beautiful form at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, John, who's like seeing this vision of what's happening. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus. Has conquered. So that you can open the scroll and it seals. And then John looks and what does he see? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Lion is an image of power, an image of kingship, an image of who Jesus is the ruler, the reign. But then the image gets flipped into a slain lamb. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of Messiah, a different kind of ruler, a different kind of kingdom. And he is ruling and he is conquering in a fundamentally different way. The vision goes on to say, it says, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed your people for God from every tribe, And language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest. And they shall reign on this earth. Not only are you God who enters into suffering, the actual way in which you conquer and establish your kingdom is through your own suffering and absorption of hostility and hate and sin and violence into yourself. That's how this thing works. It never changes. It is always Jesus' suffering that makes space. See, the cross is the great revelation of who God is and the way that he works in the world. He does not manage or control fear or anxiety with violence or coercion or manipulation. He absorbs it into himself. He ransoms his people. His kingdom works different than Pilate's kingdom. It is upside down from those of this world. The cross is the great revelation of who God is. So if we want to know who God is, we look to the cross. We want to know how God acts in the world. We look to the cross. We want to know how God thinks about us. We look to the cross. We want to know how God manages fear. We look to the cross. We want to know how God thinks about the people around us or how God thinks about power or how God thinks about sin or how God thinks about love. You look to the cross. It is the great revelation of who God is and how God works in the world. In this small story, we get to know who Jesus is. But in this story, only a few people see it. Like, only a few people actually get what Jesus is doing. Pilate doesn't get it. His disciples don't get it. But you have this random character in the story, the centurion. And he's one of the only people who does get it. He's the leader of the guard overseeing the crucifixion. Like, his way of life is a way of violence, a way of war, a way of Roman power. His kingdom is Rome. And he sees this display from Jesus, like the suffering, this mysterious, upside-down, victorious defeat of Jesus, and the centurion says, oh, this was the Son of God. This is the thing that disciples throughout Mark have struggled to understand. And we can see it, like in this moment, that they don't understand it because Heather talked about this last week, but none of them are with him. None of the male disciples are with Jesus. They've all fled. These people who asked about being great, these people who asked to sit on his left and his right hand, the people who asked to drink the cup, the people who asked to be baptized in his baptism, who said they would be with him until the very end, are not with him until the very end. But the centurion sees it. And then another group. Season. in the humility of the cross you have this moment where faith is revealed so you get it with the centurion and then you get it with another group of followers in verse 40 and 41 it says there was also women looking on from a distance among whom were mary magdalene and mary the mother of james and the younger of joseph and salome and just in case we don't know who these women are, it says, and when he was in Galilee, they followed him. They are followers of Jesus. And they ministered or served him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women are followers of Jesus. They are supporters and ministers and servants of Jesus. And that word ministered, it's actually the same word that Jesus tells his disciples if they want to be great, they need to be ministers or servants. So when the disciples come to him and they're like, hey, what does it take to be great? What does it take to sit at your left and your right-hand side? Jesus says, oh, you need to become the servant of all. And then it never gets used of those male disciples, but it does get used of these women right here. They were servants of Jesus. And they were with him to the point of the cross. In the humility of the cross, we get to see the faith of those who had been serving all along, who looked like Jesus, who followed him to the way of the cross, and from the cross even to the tomb. And so when they see the violence of the cross, they respond by following. And they follow from the cross even to the tomb. But then as you continue to follow the story of these women, you actually get something very fascinating. They follow Jesus from the cross to the tomb. And then this is chapter 16. It says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. they brought spices so that they might go and anoint the body of Jesus. And entering the tomb, these women saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Logically. And he said to them, do not be alarmed, illogically. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, but he was crucified and he is risen. He is not here. But go tell his disciples, there you will see him just as he told you. And so they went out and fled from the tomb for fear and trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I love this about the book of Mark, that no one, no character is simple. Everyone gets to be pretty complicated in the book of Mark. So you have these women whose faith is tested. And it was tested at the cross, but they were courageous at the cross. And then we come to the tomb, and they are afraid at the tomb. And I was thinking, like, why is this moment? Like, what is this moment? And, and what it is about Jesus revealing about their response. And I think that it is easier sometimes to live without hope than it is to hold hope in the face of the mysterious and unexpected ways that God works. It is easier to manage expectations, it is easier to control the outcome, or even to say that there will be no good outcome than it is to hold on to hope that God is doing something mysterious and unexpected. And so to fear, like Pilate tries to control it, and to the fear the crowds reject it and dehumanize Jesus, and to fear the women follow Jesus for a significant amount of time as soon as their fear is triggered by the unexpected and mysterious, and the fear becomes too much and they flee. Because sometimes it is difficult to hold that mysterious and unexpected hope of God's work. And maybe that sounds strange or like it doesn't make any sense, but if you think about where these women were coming from, like they had just watched Jesus die. They were afraid. They were distraught. And to their fear, they received this weird news, this news of like a mysterious victory that the person they watched die, that they were there at the cross, is alive? Like we live with the, the benefit of knowing about the resurrection. Like we live in the benefit of being post this moment and living in the wake of the church and the spread of the gospel, but they... Don't. And so in this moment, it is just unexpected and it is startling. And the amazing thing about what Mark does in this moment is this is where he ends his gospel. This unexpected, startling news that is frightening and worrisome and that leaves these women frozen. And there's a question on the table in this moment, which is, will they trust God in this unexpected and crazy moment? We've actually seen Pilate's response. We've seen the crowd's response. We saw the women respond to the cross, but now they have to respond to a new challenge. Jesus is mysteriously alive. So how will they respond to the mysterious and unexpected victory of Jesus? Will they stay frozen in fear, or will they go and tell, as this man in white tells them to do? Will they, like, pilot, try to manage it, control their anxiety? Will they, like, the crowd and the soldiers dehumanize and reject it? Or will they trust? Will they go and tell? Now, on this side of the story, we know the answer to that question. It's a yes. takes a second, though. But Mark didn't simply write this story to retell the story. He wrote it to evoke that same kind of question. How will people respond to this unexpected, mysterious news of Jesus? How will they respond to it? And Mark is writing specifically in a world that is chaotic. Rome is the power. But Jesus is gone. The disciples are gone. It is a world that is controlling fear and rejecting that which it doesn't understand. And so he asked these readers this question. How do you respond to the mysterious and unexpected story of Jesus? Do you trust and go? Or do you freeze in fear? And that is the same question that 2,000 years later we're being asked. How do we respond to the unexpected, mysterious victory of Jesus? How do we respond when we don't know all the answers and we don't know what comes next? When we can't, well, when everything in us wants to control the outcomes or just give up on the outcomes altogether, how do we respond to the mysterious and unexpected news of Jesus? What do we do with it all as we look at the empty tomb? And the good news, I think, about this story is not only that Jesus is alive, but it is also that everyone responds poorly once or a thousand times. Right? The disciples, they don't get it. And so when the cross happens, they flee and they run away. But when the resurrection happens, they start to get it. The women, they stay all the way to the cross. When the resurrection happens, they flee in fear. But you also have this crazy story that we kind of glanced over of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a member of the council. And if you're reading in chapter 14, it says that every member, every member of the council condemned Jesus to die. That means Joseph did. They unanimously voted to condemn Jesus Jesus to die, and yet, just a chapter later, Joseph is just like, uh-oh. So we remo- he's the one that removes Jesus from the cross, that wraps him in a cloak and places him in a tomb. Everyone in this story at some point responds poorly to Jesus and is given another opportunity to respond again. And that, too, is the story of the gospel. That we are asked, how do we respond to this crazy and unexpected news of the risen Savior? And even if we respond poorly this time, how do we respond again? And how do we respond again? And how do we respond again? So, Missio, today, what do you do with the person of Jesus? Right now, right here. Not what did you do yesterday, or what did you do the day before that, or what did you do 10 years ago, but how do you respond to the person of Jesus in the mysterious victory of the empty tomb? How do you respond to it right now? Do you try to control it or manage it? Do you reject it and dehumanize it? Or do you receive his invitation to trust and to go? even if you didn't yesterday. So, Missio, how do you respond to the mysterious victory of Jesus? As you wrestle with that question, we're going to sing, but we're also going to come to the table. Every week we come to the table. Isaac said it in the Missio voice that every week we come to the table, and the reason is because it is a moment for us to respond again. To say, like, Jesus has laid this table before us, and he invites us every week to respond again, to receive his grace and his kindness and his invitation to trust and go in this mysterious victory again and again. So, Missio, how do you today, right now, right here, respond to the mysterious, victorious news of Jesus? Would you come to the table as you answer that question? Let's pray. Jesus, I think it would be really dishonest for me to say, I always understand what you're doing. I just really never do. And thank you that today that is exactly the truth of your story, that I don't need to know the answer to the questions that come next. But instead, I'm invited to trust you, to receive the invitation of your mysterious victory and to go in the truth of it from this moment to the next. So Jesus, as we hear that story today, as we hear it anew, we've probably heard it a thousand times before, but as we hear it anew, would you help us ask that question anew? How do we respond to you? Jesus, help us ask that question and leave this place sent in the mysterious victory of you. In your name we pray. Amen.